Alright guys, we're going to be considering the last half of Revelation 13 once again tonight. So if you remember, the Apostle John has been giving an apocalyptic vision of the events that take place in the age of the New Covenant. The time in between Christ's first and second coming, this time period that we're now living in, in other words. And he's trying to, or he's wanting to explain to us truth and spiritual reality in light of a few apocalyptic characters. And chapter 13's focus has been on these two beasts that operate with and for the power of the dragon, who represented, of course, Satan. And the first beast, the beast from the sea, was descriptive of governments and their powers, which are opposed to Christ, the church, and the kingdom of God as a whole. And those powers are presently active in our world today. They were active in John's time period, and it's active now today as well, and it will be active until Christ comes again. Uh, The first example that John gave was one which uh, which, which was already at work at the time period in which he was living in, even before, actually, before he was writing this letter from the island of Patmos. He began showing us how This first beast was uh, symbolic of ancient Rome under the rule of Nero, and we saw that in light of the prophetic imagery contained in Daniel 7, which was recaptured in chapter 13. But that's not to say that we're only to think of 60 AD here, of, of, of Rome and Nero here. What was true of their opposition to the spiritual seed of the woman, which is talked about in chapter 12, is also true of every government in this present evil age which rejects Christ and his lordship, his law. And so does it unfold the exact same way in every location, at every time, and at every point in this age? No, it doesn't. But behind the wicked operation of governments is the same spirit which is, which is opposed to Christ and his reign. That's the point. And the same is true with the second beast as well. The second beast is from the earth. In my estimation, many of the prophecies regarding the beast and the Antichrist are indeed tied to first century events, but as apocalyptic images, what they represent continually resurfaces throughout the subsequent ages, all throughout this time period, all the way until Christ comes again and puts an end to them, as we'll read when we get to the latter chapters of this book. And so remember, the second beast works closely with the first beast. They're colleagues, they're contemporaries. And the second beast symbolizes more specifically those religious and cultural and economic powers opposed to Christ and his church. And in fact, the description of the beast is in accord or is in step with what John calls Antichrist in his short epistles and with what the apostle calls the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians, um, the, the second letter that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. A final Antichrist individual that will be used of the dragon of Satan right before the second coming of Christ will emerge at some point in history. That's what we see this as telling us. And what history has shown us, though, and what our Protestant and Reformed forebears and brothers have observed, taking all these things in together, is that the Pope of Rome, of Roman Catholicism, is the premier example of this second beast, this Antichrist. The office of the Pope is, is certainly Antichrist. That's what we covered last week um, when we talked about who is this second beast. But our assignment for tonight is to consider what the actions of the second beast are in light of Revelation 13. And so let's, we'll read our passage and then let's pray after that and then we'll get to it. So we're going to begin reading God's word at verse 11 in chapter 13. 
Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, that the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this word, and we know, God, that apart from grace from you, it would just be mere words on a page. We do pray then, Lord, that you would help us to see the truth in your words, that to make sense of this apocalyptic imagery, so that we can be well-equipped to glorify you no matter what is happening in this world. You are sovereign, and we are glad. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give to us eyes that see and ears that hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the first question that we have for the text tonight is, and what we're trying to really think of the whole night, is what does this beast do? Uh, The second beast acts on behalf of the first beast. That is clear from verse 12. But here we ask, what in particular does he do? What are his methods? What are his objectives? And first of all, we should recognize that this beast does try in the first place to deceive men and women to abandon true, the true worship of the true God and then to commit idolatry. And think of how evil that is. Is there anything more evil than this? To get people to do, to not do, that is, what they were created to do, which is to worship God and enjoy Him forever. To have people deceived so that they commit idolatry. Again, that's why the confession are clear here about the office of the Pope. With the false, false gospel uh, of Roman Catholicism, many are deceived. Many are deceived by Rome's idolatry. And so notice the appearance of the second beast. In verse 11, we're told that this beast looks like a lamb. Again, here we have another imitation of Christ. Do you remember how the first beast imitated Christ so as to function as a counterfeit? In 13.3, we were told that one of the heads on the first beast, quote, seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. That was verse (coughs) 3. The first beast functions as a counterfeit, imitating Christ in regards to death and resurrection. Remember the Nero rumor? We talked about that a few weeks ago. But this second beast also imitates Christ, functioning as a counterfeit to him. This one looks like a lamb. Remember that how Christ was described in chapter 5 as a lamb slain or as, as a lamb standing as though it had been slain, Revelation 5, 6. Now, the second beast is described as a lamb in verse 11. And we should take note of this because something of his method is revealed to us here. When this beast does his work, 
he does not appear as we would think a beast would, as a big monster and, and ugly and grotesque and clearly, obviously, not of God. But instead, this beast appears as a helpless and harmless lamb, gentle, meek, and mild. He deceives by appearing to be a good and a right thing. So we need to be discerning. And this lamb beast has two horns. Uh, Once everything is considered, I think it's best to see these two horns as corresponding to those two witnesses that we talked about in Revelation chapter 11, those two faithful witnesses those two witnesses that were to proclaim the gospel truth even in the face of intense persecution. And this, because this beast we'll see with these, this lamb with the two horns, he uses words. He uses words, but he speaks lies and he uses them as weapons to deceive. Lies that are sprinkled with the truth, but are not the whole truth. And this leads people to not worship the true lamb, but instead to worship a display of this beast who is masquerading as the lamb. Notice the beast even speaks like a dragon, we read. Remember how the dragon was identified with Satan back in chapter 12, verse 9? It's where it said um, the dragon, that ancient serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Well, this second beast speaks like a dragon. He's a deceiver. He, he symbolizes religious cultural and economic entities that serve as agents who carry out the persecution of the church and the deception of the ungodly on behalf of the first beast. He's like the dragon. He's, he's deceptive. These, these attacks, these enemies of the church, they appear and they look nice on the surface. They have smooth speech. They seem to care. They claim to love. They offer hope. They appear to do good. But when examined closely, they show themselves to be wholeheartedly opposed to God and to his people. And notice that the second beast is also able to perform um, these miraculous acts. Look at 13 to 14. It says the second beast is able to make great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of all people. And by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of or on behalf of the beast that deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived, the first beast, the image of the first beast. So here we begin to see clearly how this beast represents false prophets. In fact, that is what is, that's what this beast is actually called later on in Revelation. Remember how I mentioned a few weeks back how Revelation 19 also deals with these beasts as well, but there it's the beast and the false prophets prophet. In Revelation 19.20 we read and the beast was captured and with it the false prophets, prophet who was in its presence or again on its behalf. They had done these signs in which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So again remember in Revelation it's not like a, you're not just simply reading from start to finish as one big complete story. It's, it's over and over it's telling the same story through different angles. It's recapitulation is the technical term of it. And so what, we were reading, what, we, what we'll eventually be reading in chapter 19 is speaking about the same types of things that we're reading here. We know that's true because it mentions the mark of the beast. It mentions the beast and this false prophet, which is the second beast as well. But we'll see that more when we get there. So notice how this beast is allowed to perform great signs. He's a counterfeit Christ. Who did more signs than Christ Jesus himself? Remember what John the Apostle said about the works of Christ at the end of his gospel account. 
that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written if they were to write them all down. And this beast, this false prophet, deceives through these signs. He's a counterfeit Christ. We might also notice that he is a counterfeit then of any who would truly inherit God's word. And so in that way, we think of him even like as a counterfeit Moses. Do you remember how the prophet Moses performed signs before Pharaoh when God commissioned Moses to uh, announce the, the Mosaic covenant or the, the old covenant and he had him to go to Pharaoh so that his people who were in bondage to Egypt could be let go and freed. Well, he had to first go before Pharaoh and Pharaoh had these magicians with him. And so Exodus seven eleven. <coughs> um, Exodus seven eleven says, Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. So remember, Moses had a staff and he put it down on the ground and it became a snake. And by the power of God, as a true miracle, this wooden staff became a snake so that Pharaoh could understand that Moses was speaking for God. But then, maybe to our surprise, the servants of Pharaoh did the same thing. How did they do it? I don't know. Perhaps it was an illusion, or perhaps it was some ability granted to them for the purpose of deceiving, and then God's ultimate end being accomplished and reached, which in that case was the redemption of his people, of his, who, is, who is Israel, from slavery. But they were able to perform a great sign. The point, though, is that they function basically like a counterfeit to the prophet Moses. Do you see, though? that this dealing with Israel in the Old Covenant was kind of like a smaller scale of what we see true in this present evil age. The Pharaoh was like the first beast, and his servants were like the second beast. They were false prophets who deceived the people based upon the power, the authority given to them from the first beast, who in this case is Pharaoh. Back to Revelation. This beast is even allowed to make fire come down from earth, from the onto the earth in front of the people, Revelation 13, 13. That should remind us of another Bible story, uh, the contest with uh, the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal that's described to us in 1 Kings 18. Do you remember that account with the fire that comes down from heaven? There stood the true prophet Elijah and there stood 450 false prophets of Baal. And an altar was erected by each of them, and a bull was sacrificed upon the altar, and the prophets were called upon to they were called upon to summon their God, and the true God would send fire down from heaven to consume the offering and the altar. And the prophets of all they danced around the altar for hours, they were cutting themselves, as was their custom, but nothing happened. Elijah ends up mocking their false god and mocking them for being deceived. And then we read in verse 36 to 39. So at that, that time of the offering of oblation, Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then... The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. Because remember, Elijah had also poured like 12 buckets of water onto the altar to just show it in there, the, the power of God to even 
could consume this wet altar. And it says, And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. But here, in Revelation 13, the beast is said to be allowed to make fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of the people. Again, he appears as a lamb, doing things that seem like they come from the true Lord, but it's false. It's not for God's glory. The meaning is that the false prophets will have success in this time between Christ's first and second coming because of the kinds of deceptions they will make. Not saying that there's going to necessarily be literal fire coming down, but what was established in Elijah's fire, in that, that true event that happened, was that the true God is real, and he is the God of Israel, and he speaks the truth. And so they're pointing us back to that to see that, that these people are going to deceive with powers that make it seem like it comes from the true God. Again, just think of the millions of people who have been deceived by Rome, by Roman Catholicism, or even false versions of the faith that exist in Protestant circles, progressive, shallow, and pragmatic congregations. Uh, They're filled with often goats. That is, false Christians. Christians in name only thrive at those kinds of places. So what is being symbolized here in the book of Revelation is said plainly elsewhere in the New Testament Jesus himself told his followers, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Ravenous wolves, Matthew 7, 15 to 16. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Matthew 24, 11. In verse 24, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if even possible, the elect. So that's how genuine the, the types of deceivers, that's how genuine these deceivers appear, that they could even, you know, if possible, lead astray the elect. The point being that it's not actually possible. But I want for you to recognize that it is those within the church who are threatened by the false prophets. They're active, not only out in the world, they deceive not only those living in the world, but they threaten the church. They arise within Christ's church, seeking to, seeking to deceive even those who profess Christ. So these kinds of things can certainly display themselves even in true churches. And so we need to be discerning and pay attention to what preachers are saying. Often, in many churches, they're just mentioning Bible texts and Bible ideas without really dealing with the text. And they're making it, and they make it man-centered rather than seeking to exalt Christ and God as the intent of Scripture. Uh, listen to Peter's words. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, Second Peter 2.1. And remember, Christ's rebuke delivered to the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2.18. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So that was a church that had already been compromised by this beast from the land. There's already false teaching in this true church and people were going along with it. The same could be said of that church in Pergamum. Christ rebuked them by saying, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. 
so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 2, 14-16. They too have been compromised by the beast from the land. In this instance, by the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. So again, this activity of this beast, it's happening during this whole time period. It was already happening in John's day. It's happening in our day as well. Do you see that the false prophets and false teachers have always threatened God's people? They're able to lead people astray into false worship, not lead them out of salvation if they truly are saved because God preserves his people, but they do harm God's true people keeping them weak, keeping them immature. They're able to deceive men and women to commit idolatry, that is, to worship falsely. And to speak very plainly, Christians today are gullible. They're very gullible, and they're very naive to the threat of false teaching within the church. They assume that if a man is called a pastor, that he can be trusted then. If he reads a few words from the Bible... In a sermon, then what he says must be biblical. If he's funny or eloquent or cool, then you know people listen to him. And so many who claim to be Christ followers today are in fact following men who teach what is false. They're following them like a lamb or a sheep going to the slaughter. This is a big issue in the United States. In our very own Bay Area even, we need to be discerning. And how can we know whether a man be true or false? Well, we have God's word. He is to be tested by God's word. Does he say what God said? Does he teach God's truth? Or does he just get up there and tell some stories and make it, you know, a clever little syllogism about how great you are? Does he order the church and his ministry according to God's directives? Does he himself meet God's qualifications? Or has he gone his own way, having decided for himself what he must do and say? Now consider the task that God gave to the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel, the true prophet, was to confront false prophets of his day. God called him and he said this, Ezekiel thirteen six through 8. He said, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying, and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I, meaning God, have not spoken? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. Uh, There... There are many in our day who say, thus say the Lord, essentially by claiming, by claiming to present a Bible passage and then teach from it. And then, instead of actually teaching what it says, proceed to say what the Lord has not said or fails to say what the Lord has said. And friends, we must be aware of this from this beast. This beast from the sea who at first comes to us as a wolf in sheep clothing to deceive those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast who is wounded by the sword and yet live, Revelation 13, 14. Secondly, 
we should recognize that when this beast is not able to succeed through deception, he pursues men to abandon the true worship of God and commit idolatry. What he does then is he persecutes them. There are two forms of persecution mentioned in this text. The first is physical, and the second is economic and cultural. So look at verse 15. And the second beast, and it, the second beast, was allowed to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain, to be killed. Clearly, uh, this is the story uh, from Daniel 3 of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael that stands behind the passage that we are considering tonight. What does this beast from the earth do? It compels earth dwellers to make an image of the first beast, the beast from from the sea who symbolizes political powers that persecute so that men would bow down to it and worship it. And if you remember from Daniel 3, what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He set up an image of gold so that his subjects would come and bow down to it and worship it. Now, please understand that when Daniel 3.1 says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, it doesn't mean that King Nebuchadnezzar himself got out a hammer and some smithing tools and made this image of gold himself. He didn't get his hands dirty. He didn't go up to the furnace himself to make it. His administrators carried it out. And they also themselves probably did not build out the statue, but they compelled the people of the land to do it. You see, again, in this way, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is a type of the first beast. And his officials, the satraps, is verse, chapter 3, verse 2, the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces, those ones who commissioned the people to then make this idol that they would then be forced to worship, They were a type of the second beast. They were the ones who saw to it that the statue was built. And they would be the one to see it, see to it that it was worshipped by all in Babylon. Think modernly even. How many churches told their people to stay home? Even after it was clear, after the COVID stuff was not as dangerous as they initially said. They did the bidding of the first beast, instructing God's people to obey the beast rather than the Lord. There's a correlation there if you see it. Let's consider again the beast from the earth of Revelation 13. What does this beast do after the image is erected? Verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. That also echoes the situation in Daniel chapter 3. Let me read Daniel 3, 3 through 6. I already read part of it. Um, Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the providences gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music you are to fall down and worship the golden image that king nebuchadnezzar has set up and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace so if the if the image were alive if it were truly a god worthy to be worshiped then it should speak for itself but this was no god at all it was merely a creation of man 
and therefore it was dependent upon man, its creator, to speak for him. The herald, one of Nebuchadnezzar's most trusted ministers probably, he proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, when you hear the sound of the music, you're to fall down and worship this golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And what was the threat? Whoever does not do this, whoever does not immediately bow down and worship this image, when the music plays, then they're going to be put to death. They're going to be cast into a fiery furnace. The beast from the earth in Revelation 13 symbolizes that kind of power. It symbolizes those religious, cultural, and economic entities that serve of agents, often of political agents, who carry out the persecution of the church when the faithful refuse to enter into idolatry and abandon the true worship of God. Notice that the beast uses not only physical persecution, but also economic sanctions in its quest to nudge men and women towards idolatry. Really quick, even, I'm just thinking right now, when we were open during COVID and somebody from the state came to us and called us on that, it wasn't like it was Governor Newsom who came, right? It was somebody that he sent to us, to come to us. It's that same sort of relationship that is being played out here between these types of beasts. So remember, um, so then here, let's look at how the beast also uses this other way. Look at verse 16. It says, It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Friends, the mark on the right hand or the forehead is not to be taken literally. I hope we're used to that already when we come to this book. It's not a physical mark, but a symbolic mark. The, The mark on the forehead or the right hand symbolizes ownership and allegiance. For one to take the mark of the beast, that one must pledge allegiance to the beast, in essence, bowing in worship before it, confessing it as Lord. Even if it doesn't do those exact things, right? It's speaking in apocalyptic imagery. It's speaking of it in symbolic ways to help us to see what's going on. Remember that those who pledge allegiance to Christ bow in worship before him, confessing him as Lord, and have been, we are told, marked by him. They are the ones who were, quote, sealed, from every tribe, nation, and tongue, Revelation 7.4. If you look at 14.1, it's no accident that immediately after the mark of the beast is mentioned in 13.18, we read, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Certainly, it's not to be taken literally either. But it's a symbol of ownership and allegiance. Those who have God's name written on their foreheads are those who belong to him and he to them. All who are of the world, who trust in the world, who are bowing before Caesar, saying Caesar is Lord, take upon themselves the mark of the beast. And even though it's not a physical thing that you can see, it's there. That's what Revelation is telling us. And all we who trust in Christ, who bow before Christ and saying Jesus is Lord, are sealed by him and have his name and his father's name written upon their foreheads. Again, I think there's a lot of Christians in this room tonight, but I don't see 
Jesus' name or you know, the Father's name on anybody's forehead tonight. It's not a literal thing that's being talked about here. It's speaking symbolically about the ownership that is belonging unto us, owned by Christ or owned by the world. But notice that it only, it's not only those who have the mark of the beast who are allowed to buy and sell. The mark of the beast, though it's not a physical mark, but symbolic and spiritual, may from time to time manifest itself in physical and tangible ways. Soon after John's day, for people to engage in commerce in the marketplace, they would have to offer incense to false gods and to Caesar in order to be allowed to do business. What's a Christian to do in that case, right? A Christian couldn't in a good conscience offer incense on the altar of Zeus or some other false god, right? That's a, a physical manifestation in that sense then of this mark of the beast. There is evidence during the reign of Decius in 249 AD and Dysolation in 303 AD that certificates were issued to those, to those who were loyal to the emperor and participated in the required rituals of the imperial religion. And to have a certificate would mean that you could buy and sell and enjoy life within society. To lack a certificate obviously puts you at risk. You would not be free to trade and you'd be in danger of imprisonment or even death. So here the mark of the beast took on a physical form. Or, you know, again, think of the COVID restrictions that we had here. The government, for a virus that is mostly safe for everyone, mandated that you obey the government. A lot of churches said you had to do this even. Get your vaccine or you can't go visit grandma in the nursing home. Wear your mask and social distance, or you can't do most anything. Some churches even made a a requirement for worship at those specific congregations. That's evil, friends. And and think, the beast, did the beast itself do a good job with those rules? No, right? They were just for show. Uh, The hypocrisy of our government was on full display during all of that. I do find it somewhat tiring to listen to Christians who hold to like a futuristic and literalistic interpretation of the book of Revelation, freaking out about when there's like a talk of a new payment method involving a chip implanted in the skin or something like that. Is that the mark of the beast? No. Not unless you're required to denounce Christ or to bow and worship before Caesar or to do or say something that would amount to a denial of of the faith and to a denial of the Lord to get it, then it would be a physical manifestation of the mark of the beast. But if not, it might just be cool technology. But be aware, the beast and the false prophet's tendency to use what might be cool as a new advancement to further their plan and goal in this world. Now, verse 18 reveals to us the number of the beast says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Lots of ink have been spilled on this one little verse. A lot many words have been said about it. Um, some have said <coughs> that this number 666 refers to Nero, who was, of course, notorious for his mistreatment of Christians. Nero died in 68 A.D., And so this theory is based upon a method of assigning numerical value to to the Hebrew letters of Nero's name. And so when you 
take the Hebrew spelling of Nero and you, you know, the alphabet has a certain amount of numbers in it. When you add up those numbers uh, in Nero's name, they equal 666. That's interesting, of course. And certainly Nero was an enemy of Christ and an enemy of the church. And the number being applied to him there then makes sense. But that sort of uh, numerology is a bit suspect, really. I've heard actually that Barney the dinosaur is 666. If you look at his name in Latin, a cute purple dinosaur, and you number them. You know, but any specific numbering is too literal as a too literal take of the text to do that sort of math with the alphabet. A much more straightforward interpretation of this number, which I think is consistent with the way that we've I've been trying to teach this book for these 13 chapters now is it would involve seeing how it's representative of something. It's representative of sinful and fallen man under the sway of these beasts. A number that communicates then like total imperfection. The number for man, we've talked about numbers in Revelation having significance before. The number of man is six. Man is made on the sixth day. And so you have 666 to represent this beast, this false prophet, in light of the unity that they have with man who is opposed to Christ and his kingdom. The number which communicates completion or perfection in the scriptures is seven. We talked about that months ago. And so the number of God and of Christ and his spirit would be 777. So here we have a trinity of sevens, if you will, Father, Son, and Spirit, Holy Spirit, 777. But the number of the beast is the number of man or a number of imperfection repeated three times over. We have a trinity of sixes, a trinity of imperfection. It's once again, it's a, it's a mockery of the Lord. It should be recognized that the three figures have been introduced to us so, uh, so far as who oppose God and his people, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, or the second beast, same, same individual. These three are like a false trinity who seek to deceive men and women to worship them instead of God. Again, the point is that the dragon, Satan, his work is deceptive and it mocks the truth. It doesn't blatantly look wrong. There are some instances when it does, of course. Right? Like, I mean, Buddhism is nothing like Christianity. Islam is nothing like Christianity. Although, you know, those who are Muslim do say that they believe in Jesus. They say that they believe in, you know, the same Old Testament account for the most part. So there are some similarities there. But even there, the similarities aren't enough to actually be in step with true Christianity. The Jesus that the Muslims say that they believe in isn't true God and true man. He's not the eternally begotten son of the father. And even what they claim to believe of the Old Testament isn't in step with what all the Old Testament teaches, the doctrines therein, and whatnot. It's not the same. And so beast, the dragon, and, this, and, and the Antichrist, the false prophet, are much more deceptive than that. They, they come looking as if they are truly of God, of Christ, yet they're not. And that's how they deceive many. They mock the truth. The number 666 is meant to impress upon the reader just how foolish it is to go the way of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. 
you will be sorely disappointed with what you find there. They are incomplete. They are imperfect. They are creatures of God and not the creator who in six days made all things in the heaven and on earth. And on the seventh day, he entered into his holy rest. And do not take his mark, friends. Again, it's not a literal mark. But there are people who take this mark, who reject the truth and go after false idols and commit idolatry and and worship falsely. They, They take this mark by turning from true worship of the one true God to the worship of idols. Worship the creator only and not the creation. This calls for wisdom. This calls for discernment. For what the spiritually empowered enemies of God do is seek to deceive through the imitation of what is true. They take the truth and they twist it. And in doing so, deceive many. They make a mockery of the truth by attempting to look like the truth so that you won't worship the true God, but instead offer your worship to them to commit idolatry. But don't, don't at this point, friends, forget the promises of God. Uh, in this vision, the Lord God is showing us Satan's playbook. He's showing us how the enemies of the church in this period that we live in operate. He's giving it to us, granted in apocalyptic imagery, granted in imagery that we have to know something about the way in which God revealed truth in the past, right? Like through Elijah and the prophets then, through Daniel and the testimony that was, that was proclaimed there, through Moses and Pharaoh. We have to understand those things so when we come to here, we, we understand what he's saying. But he's telling us this so we can see how the world today uses governments and false religion as agents, how he uses them to persecute the church and deceive the ungodly. It's a kindness to us that the Lord God does this. It's a blessing for the Lord to show us these things. But he will soon again, and although we've been in this whole chapter now for a few weeks, having to look at these two beasts, this false prophet and, and these, these evil, evil governments, he's going to soon remind us again of the victory that Christ won for his people. Chapter 14 begins by having our eyes set back on Mount Zion. where our our help comes. Has our eyes been set back on Christ, who is the true God, who is the only mediator between God and man, who is the only way that we can have our sins atoned for. He's the true lamb slain. And he's the true giver of salvation and life to all who believe and trust in him. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for right giving this vision to john and having him to write these things down to us there's no way that we could think that he would be thinking of a church even two thousand years in the future from when he wrote this or almost two thousand years in the future but in your providence lord you have preserved it for us so that we can know what is happening and so we pray lord that you would help us to be awake to these types of things that are happening in our culture and that you would help us to not be deceived, Lord. We know that if left to ourselves, we would be easily deceived, often even choosing uh, to be deceived and to uh, pursue the truth if it wasn't for your grace in our life, Lord. So please help us. Help us to be ready to 
discern what is true and the difference between what is almost true, God. And we pray, Lord, for the protection of your people. We're so grateful that in many ways we still have it pretty easy here and that persecution hasn't come upon us in very hard uh, manners, Lord. Although it has, uh, in some ways, shown that that might be the case in the near future. But until that day, Lord, and let us be faithful in the moment. And if that day should ever come, we know that you will give us grace to be sustained through it as well, too. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, guys, any questions, comments? I think I can try to clear up. Henry? Do you think it would be bad to get a tattoo of the name Jesus on your forehead? (laughs) I think it would send a clear message to many people. Either that this man really loves Jesus or that this man is crazy. I don't know. (laughs) Would that be taking his name in vain? No. Would that be taking his name in vain? Yeah. Um, again, so it's interesting because usually we live in a culture and society that it gets changing a little bit, like the whole left behind mentality, which was very popular books a long time ago in movies. The, the theology of those isn't as popular in the church today as it was 15, 20 years ago even. And, but with that, it was very popular then to, to very much so think that the mark of the beast was a very physical and literal thing. But nobody ever said that the mark of the Lord was a physical and literal thing. And so it was inconsistent a little bit there when you think of those two things together. But I would suggest, you know, not getting a tattoo on your forehead just because it really limits your future employment. <laughs> In most places. But although that's changing in our culture too, that's a weird thing, I guess. I do have, um, I do know somebody who, there's a Bible verse that in Psalms that says the Lord has, the Lord is righteous on the inside of his thigh or something like that. So I know a guy who did that and got Hebrew that did that there. It's kind of weird, you know, but. It's like, hey, can you do this on the inside of my thigh? Yeah. Like, he is, okay. this actual individual is not walking with the Lord right now, if that Shocker. means anything. But I hope he'll repent and turn back to the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Every time he looks at the back of his thigh, he regrets that. I hope not, man. Um, it, the book is tough, though, right? Because you have to take what of these things are, we, there is something literally happening in this world, and it's being expressed by the symbolic imagery. So we have to understand those things in light of what we see scripture telling us that is not easy to do but yeah i would not um get a tattoo on your forehead <laughs> it's not necessarily bad <laughs> no it's not necessarily bad i tattoos really or... do that, <laughs> <laughs> well, do we do we want to have oh, the tattoo conversation no <laughs> no i don't want henry getting a face tattoo don't get a face tattoo yeah it's not a good idea you could. It's painful. It's hard. Yeah. Nothing else, guys? Okay.